Welcome back to the second episode of Perform, Prevent, Recover. And in this episode, we're really focused on performance. I hope you enjoyed the first episode where we explained everything about load management and we discussed all the concepts, the common mistakes that are made by athletes when trying to manage their sporting load and talked about how sometimes being too careful can end up being more risk than you think. So if you haven't listened to it yet, jump across to our podcast site and have a listen. But today we've got another ripper topic and one that tends to be dividing the running world. So There's been a huge buzz in the ass world as Nike, in partnership with Elliot Kipchoge, planned an assault not only on the world record, but the previously unbreakable two-hour marathon barrier. He currently held or does hold the world record of 2.01.39 seconds, which was run at Berlin in 2018. Um, And the first assault on the record failed by only 25 seconds, so they tried to come back uh, bigger and better with their second attempt. So that first attempt was on a Formula One track in Monza, but on the 12th of October in 2019 in Vienna, Kipchoge managed to succeed in his second attempt in perhaps what we might call the most orchestrated and controlled running event ever held, arguably. So reaction since then has ranged from joy and amazement at a truly incredible athlete to, in some corners, despair at how so many variables other than Kipchoge's pure ability may have been responsible for this performance. So perhaps the most overwhelming reaction and talk amongst the running packs has been on the shoes that Kipchoge wore, and that's what we're here today to discuss. Has technology and science overcome human ability, capability, and performance? So I suppose, for me anyway, you know, the expectation is that if you've got a 100-metre sprint, then the fastest person is the winner. And in a marathon, the one with the best endurance wins. If you've got high jump, the person that jumps highest gets the gold medal. But it just doesn't quite seem that simple anymore. Apart from the constant threat of performance-enhancing drugs, which comes up in so many sports, it seems, these days, now we're faced with the prospect that maybe equipment is contributing to the defeat of another person who may well have been the best raw athlete. So... That's what we're going to get into today, Uh, and our first guest is extremely well qualified to chat about this. He is a two-times national cross-country champion, multiple state cross-country representative through teams and championships. He's been a member of the national squad for six years, 1991 to 1996, and he's been physio in his more recent life with the Australian athletics teams, uh, long-distance teams, for over 10 years, from 2003 until 2014. So uh, welcome, Rob O'Donnell. Thanks, Anthony. Great to have you along in what has obviously been, a, uh, as I said, a really divisive topic in the ass world, and I really look forward to getting your opinion both from a a, a physio point of view which is your current role but probably more importantly um, as the the elite runner uh, that you were Um, so let's take a quick glance at your own career first and and chat about a couple of the things that that you did so um, obviously I've been through a few of the the great uh, national and, and state and Australian representative uh achievements that you had but can you tell me what was the highest level you achieved in distance running and your best result? Yeah, well, thanks for that. Uh, you've, you've pretty much covered it. Uh, I, I won two national cross-country titles, uh, 1990 and 1995. Um, 1990 is a bit of a shock. I was just a young 21-year-old, um, and so I won that national title before I managed to win a state title. In '95, I was I was one of the favourites going in and, and uh, managed to win that and, and ran around the national scene for uh, 10, 15 years, uh, kind of on the fringe of Australian teams. Managed to uh, run in five Australian teams, uh, mainly across the cross country distances. But uh, probably our greatest highlight. It wasn't one of the great events, but uh, a um, World Championship Relay team, where what they call Achieve the Relay, which is a, a marathon run between five athletes. Uh, that was in '95. We managed to win that. So that was 
that was probably a real highlight as a as a you know we were treated like royalty for for a day or so in Japan so that was that was great but uh, yeah just hung around uh, the the fringes of national teams for um, uh, certainly between 1990 and 1996 when I was in the national squad was was my main main running. Okay, fantastic. And when you said in the beginning your first title as a young bloke, how old were you? Yeah, I was. So I was the youngest. I don't know if it still stands, but I was the youngest back then to win a national titles. So I was just before my twenty first birthday. Yeah, rightio. So you were combining your physio course with your running at that time. Yeah. So we were in um, second year uni, I think it was when uh, when that happened. Yeah. Okay. Um, what's the best or greatest event you've ever participated in in your career? Uh, well, you'd have to say world cross country titles. That that Chiba relay was was certainly a real buzz. Um, it was probably the biggest win I was involved in on on the international stage. But the Opway Classics, which was a an old race that it, they don't have it anymore, but it was it was a fantastic event um, on the Queen's birthday weekends. So it was three days of running. You'd run as a team, a team of I think it was seven guys that you would run various races and uh, you know, you'd race about three times a year through the Otway Ranges and that was that was a really tough event um, and uh, you know, you'd race nine times over three days uh, in all sorts of conditions. So it was a great preparation for marathon running and that sort of thing. Yeah, okay. And so was that the toughest? I seem to remember a picture of you running up Mount Wellington, I think it was, in ice and snow, and I think you've won that race a couple of times. So yeah. what's what's the what's the single toughest race you ever competed in? No, I'd say the Otways would be it, um, just because the uh, the accumulative effect of, of racing multiple times a day and one year, I can't remember which one, but uh, we, we had snow there as well. But yeah, point to pinnacle that you're talking about. Um, uh, the record for that I held for several years um, and won it four times. Uh, and then Ben St. Lawrence, who's one of our marathon runners these days and used to hold the national record for the 10K, he, he smashed it last year, so much quicker than what I ran. Okay. Uh, who's the best person you've ever had the, run- the honour of running with? Oh, I was very lucky. My running group back then, the, the Melbourne Pack, um, was coached by Chris Wardlaw and we had many stars so Rob DiCostella um, and Steve Monaghetti were both in that group so when I started um, that's why many runners um, or around the physio clinic these days will you'll hear runners call me Robbie because uh, when I started Rob DiCostella was in the group and he was the only Rob they were going to have so um, I was called young Robbie back then right put but, down to two I see yeah exactly um, so yeah, those two would you'd say stand out, but but yeah, I ran with many of, of of our best distance runners. And if we look back on Australian distance runners, can you split Deeks and Mona? Ah, oh, very tough. Mona would you'd say had a better range. He certainly got a better five k, ten k time. But Deeks was the best marathoner in the world there for a while. Um, Mona, so Deeks won nineteen eighty three world champs. Mona finished third. In Athens, that's for sure, but I can't remember the year. Sorry, Mona. Um, but, yeah, you'd say Deeks was a better marathoner than Mona and Craig Mottram potentially better distance runner than than both. Um, but we're splitting, okay. splitting hairs and I might get in trouble. <laughs> Rightio. So it's an interesting thing, and when we talk about Kipchoge and how he's going, what well, I suppose Athens, particularly distance running, you tend to get better as you get older to a certain degree what age do you think you peaked at as a distance runner yeah so myself i would have said my best running was around 95 96 so i was 26 7 year old then um most of the marathoners seemed to go a bit better so i probably faded out and wasn't as disciplined as as those guys and as committed as those guys so you would say uh, late 20s, early 30s would be the best of them. Kipchoge now, ooh, you might be able to tell me, he's about 37, 38. Um, so he, he won a world championship in 2003 on the track, um, 5K. So he's been around a long time. So his longevity's a bit unusual in terms of peaks. Yeah, and limited now. Like you, you'd very much doubt that he's got better running in him. So yeah. that yeah. two-hour barrier in in real terms... 
um, is, is probably beyond him. Yeah, okay. And the topic we're going to get into in just a sec is, in particular, shoes and footwear. When you were running, how much attention did you pay to the shoes you had on your feet? Yeah, running's changed a lot from those days. We The, the key thing for us was, as far as racing shoes, lightweight. Um, so technology and science has improved out of this world since then. Um, everything we do about running, you know, weights, we, we just didn't think about, and they do a lot more of that now. So, yeah, nothing compared to what they do now, that's for sure. Yeah, rightio. Well, let's get on and have a chat about it. The event that was ended up being called the Ineos 159, which was the attempt to break the previously untouchable and magical two-hour marathon. So let's just go back to the the first attempt, Robin, when you first heard that Kipchoge was planning a sub-two-hour marathon, what, what was your first instinctive thought of the whole project? Yeah, it's interesting because the two... So the first one in Monza in June 2017 um, was the, the Nike two-hour project um, and I thought of it as a Nike marketing right. ploy more than anything and really didn't pay like I, I look at it even even the most recent one which I was much more interested in but uh, um, you know the first one I probably gave him 10% chance of being successful and the second one about 80% chance so consequently I was more interested um, but it really did, did seem to be a, a science project as far as I was concerned rather than a true running race. Yeah, sure. And I think that's where some of the controversy comes in at the moment is how much science is fair science, maybe. So um, if we have a talk about the race itself before we try and delve deep into the controversial footwear topic, there were so many factors that they considered and controlled in the race. It was really quite amazing. Um, and it's probably fair to say that the race had unprecedented planning and support. So in my research, and you'll obviously be able to, to say a lot more than what I came up with, but I came up with five definite factors that contributed to his success. And I wanted to just go through the first four relatively briefly before we get on to the fifth, which is the shoe itself. So, um, so let's talk about the timing. So it was Vienna, it was October. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so um, the big thing with they when they when the first one uh, failed the, in in uh, 2017, they then set a, about covering everything possible. They wanted to be close to his time zone, um, and uh, I think Vienna was one hour outside uh, the Kenyan time zone where where he um, bases himself, and uh, they wanted time of the year where there'd be the least humidity they wanted it under 10 degrees celsius uh, and on a course ideally dead flat um, so they they really set out a map where they they covered all of those things and they ended up with vienna that was going to be the, give them the, their best opportunity they were able to um, it's a it's a famous um, park uh, in the center of the, the prater they call it um, so it was, it was already there. They relayed the road and things, but it, it turned out to be what they thought was going to be give them the best chance of, of uh, being successful. Yeah, right. And so they set a date. Was it just luck on that day or did they... So they had a window. Um, so they, they set the date of um, the october was it um yep. when they when they ran it and the the whole idea was that was going to provide them the best chance to get the conditions they wanted where they would have little wind the right sort of temperature the right sort of humidity and they had a window of about a week where they said to people okay we're going to okay. run it this time and they made the final decision about three days out this is going to be our day yeah rightio um so let's move on to the second thing which is which is the course i, I think one of the issues again just from my reading was that in the first attempt it was a smaller loop of around and around but can you tell us more about why they picked the course in vienna they did the big thing, they wanted long straights. I think uh, in Vienna versus Monza, so Monza's a racetrack, um, they had, I can't remember exactly how many laps that they did, but there was many laps with more bends, um, whereas uh, in Vienna they had 9.6k of straights. 
So they really, they only did four, well, 4.4 laps um, and they were largely able to run in a straight line with um, the, the bends around roundabouts um, at the end of the course. So the whole idea was to have as little interruption with his rhythm as they possibly could. Yeah, sure. And I suppose in that case, when you think about running smaller loops versus longer straights, you, you or I would imagine it would pick you up at least seconds across a marathon and in the end that's the difference between sub two and above two yeah well they, they were um, 25 seconds out the first time uh, he's probably a better athlete he'd already run the world record as you mentioned before um, in uh, Berlin the year before uh, so he was uh, probably just in better condition to have a crack um, and certainly not having as many bends. Like uh, I think it was about 17 laps that they ran in Monza versus four here. Yeah, okay. With, it's a big with, difference. Yeah, it's huge. Yeah, huge. okay. Rightio, number three, um, he had quite a bit of assistance with paces and also with hydration. And and I, I think, again, to me, this is, this is almost as controversial as the shoes in terms of a standard race versus this orchestrated attempt so can you take us through the assistance he got during the race yeah well clearly it's it's illegal um and the 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 record it's it's regarded as the the fastest marathon that uh, has ever been run but it's not uh, considered a world record um the the pacing uh, as many many races all the big marathons have paces but they have to start the race um and when they drop out they're out whereas in here they had uh, he had about 41, I think it was, paces all up. There was only 30 participated. They had reserves in case someone got injured, that sort of thing, or, or just couldn't couldn't cope. So most of the paces ran at least twice. I think a few of them ran three times where they would run 5K segments and drop out and then drop back in. And they they had it uh, organised, you know, right down to, um, you know, the nth degree. They they'd practised in wind tunnels. Even in the first attempt, they had a diamond form- formation with the paces around him. And in the first attempt, there was actually a race in that they had three guys racing. Um, two of them finished, one pulled out, and the, I think the second guy finished about six minutes behind uh, Kipchoge. Um, this time, there was only the one man. It was all about Kipchoge, and they they practised in wind tunnels, and they, they had biomechanists working out the the best way to give to protect him basically to put guys around him um, so that uh, he really had as as much protection he, as he could get yeah sure and so the the paces to me I always thought the paces were there to to pace and and to make sure he's on a set time but we know in cycling that that the person in front of you in what we call drafting can be an enormous advantage to the person behind. So are you saying that the paces are just as important to, let's say, reduce wind resistance as they are to pace the race? Absolutely. Um, there's, there's certainly the um, motivational effect of having people around you. You just get a drag from that. So just trying to hold on to the pace um, and, and having having people there in support, so there's that. But uh, yeah, a lot of what they worked out was about um, wind protection. Um, so certainly in cycling, you get a lot better drafting because of the speed they're going sure. much quicker than running. But but yeah, having having uh, they're they're running um, they're running two minutes fifty a k. So um, you know they're they're running twenty two k an hour sort of thing. So they they certainly still get some some uh, drafting benefits. Yeah, sure. And I suppose too, which you, you might move on to next, is that I believe he had a laser beam in front of him. So in terms of pacing, that's probably where his main pacing stimulus came from. Whereas the paces were actually you know motivation, people around him, and and wind resistance advantage. Yeah, I think for him, he wanted to concentrate on nothing but just keeping up with the guys around him. So the laser beams and that sort of thing were much more for the the paces. And I've heard a couple of, there was four Australians involved, and I've heard a couple of them interviewed um, since, and the laser for them was essential. And there, there was actually three lines. They changed, they had a laser the first time, but they just changed how they did it to, to try and, um, just from feedback from the runners, try and really help them along. So all the paces really focused on the laser and he just focused on the people around him. Yeah, okay. And and did they have a, a, a line along the course as well, like a quickest 
Yeah, so they have the shortest route. So he had to run, they had two lines on the outside. I think they were five or six metres apart and they had to stay within those two lines for it to be a legal marathon distance-wise. Right. And then they have the short, they have a blue line that, that pretty much is 42.195 kilometres right. and he was he would try and stick as close to that as possible. And we, I suppose when we talk about it like this, you do think, wow, well, they, they, like, is, is there anything they forgot? Oh, there wouldn't be. No, I don't know. But, it doesn't uh, sound like it because I think too was it in a normal marathon you run over to the drinks table yourself and you pick up your own drinks but that didn't happen in this race? Yeah, he had a cyclist on the course all the time and he, he would drop in and give him his drinks. Um, so no, he had nothing that interrupted his rhythm. It was interesting watching it um, as the runners um, jumped out. They, they kind of, the new runners each 5K would merge in as the other runners um, merged out. Right. And, you know, the, the main worry I would have had, they, they would have practised it many times, but that transition period with someone tripping someone else yeah, over would absolutely. have been my main concern, especially for him. You know, there was a lot of action um, as, as, you know, runners come in and runners went out. There was all this movement around him and he, I imagine, just tried to stay exactly on that blue line and they were told where they could be in relation to him. Um, but it would have been a bit hairy to start with, but yeah. but they just practiced it a lot. Absolutely. And now let's get on to the fourth one, which is the man himself. And I, and I wonder whether, with everything that's happened with this marathon, whether it's been lost a bit, because you you can't just get any marathon runner and, and do what they did and have them break sub two hours. So, I mean, amongst this, there must be some admiration for a guy that we tend to consider as the best marathoner we've ever had yeah he's a superstar um as i said he he won he started on the track um and uh won a world title over 5k in 2003 um and then he was second behind bernard laggett who was kind of the main pacer he was he was kind of the captain of the pacing team so laggett uh who who himself is you know uh, an Olympic champ and beat um, Kipchoge in a world champs in 2007. Um, he finished first, Kipchoge second. So he's been around a long time. He's won 11 marathons in a row. He's the reigning Olympic champ, the reigning world um, record holder. Like he, he, He's the best marathoner there is. Um, is and, he and the best marathoner we've had? If if he wins the so Olympics in Tokyo next year, um, so Kanisi Bikili, who interestingly enough, in, in Vapor Flies, which we'll get to, Bikili ran, I think it was one second, but within seconds anyway, at Berlin Marathon last year, 2019, he ran within a second or two of Kipchoge's world record. Um, so those two will have a great match race at, at Tokyo yeah, okay. next year. If Kipchoge wins, so he's a... a um, defending Olympic champion um, and current world record holder with 12 or 13 by then, probably um, winning marathons in a row. It, 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 you'd be hard-pressed to say he's not the best marathon ever. Yeah, okay. And I distinctly remember you showing me an amazing graph or some amazing figures, and I can't remember whether it was his Berlin race or this sub two-hour marathon, but can you break down for the average person like me to understand how incredible this effort is, how fast he ran, what his splits were? Yeah, well, what I say, I was a pretty solid runner. My PB for 5K was 13.50, and they ran 14, so 13 minutes 50, they ran 14 minutes and 10 seconds for eight and a half 5Ks in a row. Um, so they were running two minutes fifty per k, and they just they had a couple of two fifty two splits, and the timing was probably wrong. They they probably ran two fifty every single kilometre, so their pace was very consistent, and two fifty in a k. So you're talking about sixty eight, sixty nine seconds for a lap of an athletic track. Yeah, right. You know, it's amazing. Many many times over. So it's yeah, it's incredible. Okay. Rightio, well, let's get on to what we're here really to discuss, which is the shoe, and that's why the fuss tends to be around. Um, And interestingly enough, it seems that the fuss about the shoe wasn't really there until the day after the race when Bridget Cosguy came along. So can you tell us what happened there? Yeah, so... um 
Bridget Costco, you're right, in Chicago Marathon uh, the next day, was it? Um, she beat Paula Radcliffe's world record, I don't know exactly, by about 60 seconds. Radcliffe had ran 2.15.25. She ran very low 2.14s. Um, so, you know, 80 seconds maybe. Uh, she ran in the what they call the next percenters, um, which is the current model of the Vapor Flies, which is legal. Um, uh, Kipchoge actually ran in a prototype that is, well, it, it's as yet it's not on the market. So, uh, and we may never see those. So they weren't in the same shoe, but she was in the Vapor Flies, um, the same shoes that all the Pacers wore in, uh, in the um, Ionos uh, 159. So she ran in those shoes and smashed a world record that no one had got near for um, a long time. Radcliffe ran her time in 2003, uh, and I don't think anyone had got within a minute of it, that's for sure, um, you know, in 16 years. So it seems, again, for someone who had been on the scene for a little while, it's an enormous PB, isn't it? Like, we're not talking five or ten seconds. So do you automatically, with a PB like that, think that, gosh, the shoe must have done something to help her? Yeah, there's no doubt that the shoes give benefit. Um, You know, running's always been about uh, testing the limits of the human body and the best physiology of winning. And, and, you know, that's the question now. And there is some evidence, which I'm sure we'll get onto, that the shoe provides benefit for some runners more than others, um, especially rear foot strikers. Um, And... uh, you know, she may well have been in the best form of her life and, and just had a day out. That happens. Um, but, yeah, you've, you've got, to, got to just raise your eyebrows at least when you're seeing, you know, the fastest five marathons in history have all been run in these shoes. And uh, we see him run 159.40 and her run 214 minutes, uh, 2 hours 14 minutes, um, 24 hours apart in the same sort of shoe. Yeah, okay. And so, uh, look, I suppose with all the prearranged factors we spoke about at the beginning, um, it's still amazing that the shoe is the one that everyone's talking about. So, like, what is it about this shoe that is controversial or advantageous? Like, what makes the shoe so different to anything anyone else has ever produced? Yeah, well, good on Nike is all I say. Um, So... The, the shoes started as the Vapor Flies. Um, the first version of them were called the Four Percenters, they called them, because Nike had come out and, and done some, some studies that showed that the shoe for the same athlete um, running at the same pace produced 4% less energy, so an energy saving of 4% um over over the distance i'm not sure what distance they tested them over um so originally like there'd been all sorts of claims over the time that different shoes would would give an advantage um and so you just kind of ignored it to start with but then they have developed it over time they've changed the foam they've changed the 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 plates that they put in them and they just seem to have fine-tuned things more and more um until you know we're at this point and you know we'll get into the shoe itself uh, but but it seems to be the foam is the number one thing and and the stack height the the thickness thickness of the midsole um are the the two big factors that seem to give this shoe a a huge advantage and so if you talk four uh, percent improvement in running economy which which is pretty significant like in marathon terms that that's four to five minutes so in the case of Bridget Koskai, even 3% is going to gain a four to five minutes. So therein, again, you think maybe the shoe is as significant as people are saying. Yeah, yeah. So there's there's many factors in that shoe that we'll discuss um, that, that definitely lead to some performance benefits. And yeah, she was a 218 runner who's, who's ran 214. Yeah. Um, so you would base just based on that. Um, as I said, people can have big days out. I've, I've known many runners over the years who can run huge PBs. Um, and she may have got that. But when you add everything up, that the, the fastest five times in the world have all been run in the same shoe, the women's world record now all in the same shoe. And I, I imagine other, the, the second and third fastest time. Uh, in the girls is probably in the same shoes so 
Uh, it seems to be the shoe that is producing uh, all the the best performances, and you just can't ignore that. Okay, and so I've done a little bit of reading on the shoe just to try and ask you the questions uh, that we need the answers for. So there's a few controversial parts to the shoe that it seems. So let's go through them one by one. The carbon plate. Yeah, so the carbon plate was... So the, the whole point of the shoe is if they can um, increase the midsole in the shoe. So as I said earlier, when I ran, it was all about weight. Um, and it still is about weight. You want a lightweight shoe, but the way you could get rid of weight was decrease the midsole thickness, what we call the stack height. So by the midsole, you're talking the foam that runs the foam, from yeah. rear so to front? Traditionally, yeah. what they call EVA. Um, and they've changed the sort of foam that they use, and we'll get into that. But the big thing about the foam is they've been able to add um, stack height, the, the midsole thickness. So they've been able to add foam without adding weight. And that's given them room in the midsole to do things sure. like the carbon plate. Um, and all the thought initially was the carbon plate was acting like a spring and people were basically running on springs. They still may be running on springs, but it's not the the carbon plate that does it. It's more the foam. And the carbon plate is really just providing stability. The the alpha flies that Kip Cosgo ran, uh, that Kipchoge ran in um, uh, actually had a dual carbon plate in them, um, and that was thought to really provide some benefits um, as far as energy saving around the joints in the ankle. Sure. Okay, so it's really... The carbon plate, by the sounds of it, is more there to assist the midsole foam rather than the other way around. Correct, yeah. So the midsole foam is so light and spongy, if you just had that, the shoe would be totally unstable. So the carbon plate really provides stability to allow them to gain the benefits out of the foam. And so with the foam, it's obviously... From what you're saying, it's providing one of the main, if not the main, advantages of the shoe. Um, is it just the thickness of the midsole that is critical, or is there something about the foam itself that gives the benefit? Yeah, so the thickness is critical. Um, we'll get to that, but it's probably more the type of foam. The best thing about this foam is it, it allows it, it absorbs energy, stores it, and then allows it to uh, the runner to spring off. So it, it's basically acting like a spring. So it has better energy absorption um, factors than the previously used um, EVA foam. So yeah, the, the foam itself, uh, as in the, the technology of the foam, is, is a big factor. And then the thickness is more to allow them to do other things inside it. So in effect, I suppose, as physios, we will well, treat tendons all the time and talk about tendons all the time. And tendons, we know, store energy and release it. And that's where we get a lot of our energy and power and spring from. So in effect, from what you're saying, the foam's almost like extra tendons in terms of the storage and the release of energy. Yeah, it's no surprise that um, many runners report that they have left less calf and Achilles soreness and tightness with these runners. Um, because, you know, if you think about the, uh, a runner, when we land, we're, the, the force that goes through our ankle and joints is about four times our weight. So if they're doing that thousands of times, like 40,000 times over a marathon, and each time they're landing, you compress that foam, um, plus the, the effects of gravity and all of that, and if that foam is allowed to store that energy and then propel them off with it, it's it's significant. And as you say, it's decreasing the amount of work the calf and the Achilles has to do, the ankle joint. Sure. So let me ask you to put your physio hat on for a second because I think of people that we get that uh, have lower limb injuries and come to us in the clinic and say, oh, I'm going to go and run on sand or walk on sand because it's softer. But we know that that actually puts at times a lot more pressure on their soft tissues in particular so it's fine to say the foam has all this storage and release but is it for everybody like could you not have somebody put this shoe on and actually get sore in their tendons because of what the foam's doing the softness i'm sure that's possible and time this is what we don't know at this stage 
is will there, there, there generally has to be a cost. Um, so generally, if you save energy somewhere, you're, you're going to lose it somewhere else. And we will find out in, in due course whether these things start producing um, ankle injuries, knee injuries, that sort of thing. So it's, it's very possible. They're not for everyone. Um, as I said before, that it's been proven that some athletes benefit from these more than others. In particular, rear foot strikers seem to get better benefits out of the foam. And those who, and this is interesting given that Africans dominate um, distance running as it is, those that spend less time on the ground, um, so as you hit the ground, the quicker you can come off the ground, um, the, which is what Africans do very well, the more benefit you get. And these shoes seem to be better for runners that spend less time on the ground. So if you're an African athlete where that's just naturally what you do anyway, um, maybe these shoes are benefiting them more than, than non-Africans. Yeah, yeah, okay, interesting. Um, so let me put this to you. We know, again, as part of our work and with the great pods we work with here, um, that shoe companies will spend many tens of millions of dollars on research and development to produce a better shoe be it the foam, the stack height, whatever it is, why, if if Nike have just gone out and spent money and developed a brilliant runner, what's the problem with it? So the the main thing, well, companies are already copying it. ASIC's um, uh, Simon Bartold, who a, a, runs a great um, podiatry group uh, in, in, in Australia, uh, he... Uh, you can find them on, on social media. They're, they're very um, prevalent and proficient out there. He uh, released something recently about this new ASIC shoe. Um, so there's, there's companies are trying to copy it. Uh, so as far as that goes, it's, it's probably no problem other than if the shoe benefits certain people over others then if it's not an even playing field, then then there's going to be a problem. But as it stands at the moment, um, you know, no one's been able to effectively match Nike as far as development goes with that sort of thing. So, uh, But they'll, they'll all be out there trying, that's for sure. Sure. And until now, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, the most common or classic marathon shoe was an ASIC shoe until Nike came over. Is that right? Or- uh, that's a good question. There's there's many. So the the, the Asics DS Racer, I imagine you're talking about, um, was one shoe that um, many marathoners used. Adidas probably had the uh, shoe out there that was used a lot by the elite runners. Um, and some of those Adidas athletes have since changed to Nike because they want access to this shoe. Um, but yeah, I don't know when they they do stats every year um, at the major marathons and you know what was the most common shoe uh, in the field uh, and often it is ASICS shoes that uh, show up but I think that's more just the everyday jogger um, you know ASICS have got a really good name out there for running shoes generally so just most of the fields are made up by everyday joggers rather than the elite end of the field but certainly Melbourne Marathon last year uh, I don't know the stats, but there was a lot of people running around in bright green Nike shoes. Yeah, right. Okay. So what? Let's let's take the Asics DS Pacer um, and compare it to the Vaporfly Four Percent or the Next Percent. What's the single biggest difference? Is it the plate? Is it the foam? Is it the stack height? Is it the weight? So I think it's most of those things, but stack height is the number one. Um, so the big thing with stack height is if you can add height to a shoe and therefore basically effectively increase someone's leg length without adding weight, then you're giving someone a great biomechanical advantage. And so that's the big difference. The weight in most of these shoes is similar. They're all light. Um, the, the effects of the carbon plate, I'm sure, is a factor. Um, the energy absorption factors that we've talked about um, of the foam is definitely um, a factor there. But uh, yeah, I'd say the, the big difference is the stack height. The Alpha Flies that um, Kipchoge ran in, which as I said, is a prototype. It's not out there. 
Um, but they're about 51 mil is their stack height. And I'm not sure what the pacer is offhand. Sure. Okay. I think from what I looked at, the pacer or one of those shoes was about 17 or 18 mil. So it's a pretty significant difference all up. Yeah, well, I've just cheated and had a look at um, some stats behind me. And, yeah, so the, the ASIC shoe is, sits on uh, so a, a 2 mil difference, so 17 um, mil is their stack height. And, yeah, the Alpha Flies were 51. And the previous, uh, the next percenters were sitting on 40 mil. Yeah, so it's, a, it's, you know, between that old ASICS DS pacer and the Alpha Fly, you're talking three times the stack height so again we're not talking little bits we are talking big significant changes in a shoe that not only did it not add weight it actually reduced weight yeah so i've just looked at the weight differences as well i don't know the weight of the alpha flies but the next percentage is sit at 187 grams and the asics shoe is 245 so it's 60 grams lighter with a stack height of 30 mil more. Yeah, right. So it's, yeah. it's, it's an amazing difference. Yep. And as I said, if that um, stack height, so basically you're giving someone a longer lever, so you're putting them at a biomechanical advantage with, with no energy loss. In other words, they don't have to work any harder to, uh, to carry that extra leg length. Uh, so it's, it's basically putting them at a great biomechanical advantage. So in the end, really, it comes back to something you touched on before, that what it's really doing is having a significant difference to a runner's economy, to their running economy. So by wearing this shoe, you could either run the same distance and expend less energy, or you could expend the same energy and go faster. Correct. That's in effect what the shoe is doing. That's a good summary. Yep. Yep. Okay. So... Why aren't we all in the Nike Alpha Fly? Well, in, in, at the elite end of the field, they're not paid to. Um, so that's, that's the main reason, uh, you know, in the, the front end of major championships, they're, they're all paid to wear certain shoes. Um, and every other company will be working like mad to produce something as good as the Alpha Flies. In um, the general public... I'm sure, um, as I said, I've, I've seen many people uh, go to uh, the, some version of the vapor flies in, in general fun runs. So many more, many more people are certainly running in them now. So the Alpha Fly itself that Kipchoge is in, is, he's the only one that's ever run in it. Correct, yeah. Okay. So it's not available on the market and it, it may never become available. As I said, the... Number one, the, the stack height of 51 millimetre. The easy answer to this, so, so people have, have, have tagged it um, technology doping. So a shoe that is giving someone a, a benefit so that we're not necessarily seeing the best runner win a race. Um, the easy answer to it is limit the, the, the stack height. You know, allow people to have up to... Um, so 40 mil was what the next percenters were and they're, they're legally out there on the market. So whether they've just got to come up with a height of shoe that people are allowed to have, um, that, that might be the answer to things. Yep, sure. And what, to the general market, what does a pair of vapor flies cost? Yeah, they're well over three. Uh, so the the next percenters are about three hundred and twenty dollars. We don't know about the alpha flies if they if they ever get out there, but they'll be north of that. So about three hundred and fifty. So you can you can buy the next percenters. So what all the paces were wore, you can buy them and get them on the market, um, and you'll pay in excess of three hundred dollars for them. And a lot of people will say that's worth it. Um, the the big thing with this this foam and those shoes is they don't just last very long. So I always tell runners that they'll get, you know, depending on on the runner, how heavy they are on their shoes, but somewhere between 600 and 1,000 K in a pair of shoes, they won't get half of that. So these shoes are going to wear out pretty quick. And if you're paying 350 bucks each time, you you might uh, soon get sick of that. But if you just wore them for your marathons and don't train in them, you know, and you can get six, eight marathons out of them, then, you know, many people might think that's well worth it. 
Rightio, so let's let's put your physio hat back on again and let me ask you with all of the, like a, so much of your physio list is, is runners of all occasions or, or all abilities, wouldn't you say to them that spending a fair bit of money on footwear is one of the most critical things I do? So would 300... I mean, I know your elite uh, marathoner probably doesn't pay for their shoes, but to your average Joe Blow that you see in the clinic that's doing recreational and sometimes quite quite good level running, do you put much emphasis on what they wear and how much they spend? Like they're not going to go out and buy a hundred dollar pair of shoes, are they? No, well, some people probably do, but uh, yeah, there's no doubt um, people who are you know spending a bit of time running so. I say you should look at running, and this might be another topic one day, but you should look at running about 10 times the distance of the event you're training for per month. So say a marathon, they, they want to run around 400k in a month. Now you're doing so 100 kilometers a week or just shy of, um, you're doing a fair bit of running. Now they need to be in a good shoe sure. to do that if they're going to be, you know, confident that performance might be one thing but for most of them it's avoiding injury um so you you want something decent on your foot and that's going to cost them you know most good say say a, a general pair of asics that you know we'll see many runners going around in will be two hundred dollars so it's it's only another another third yeah and and by what you're saying which is quite interesting if they're doing 400 k's a month they're probably turning over their shoes ideally every ten weeks or so. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. So that's where the three hundred bucks a pop becomes a bit pricey, and particularly yeah. if what you're if saying training their shoes last less long, yep. the foam is less durable. Correct. So if they're training in those shoes, so we're saying a two hundred dollar pair of shoes that might last them, you know, eight eight ten weeks, uh, the same amount of runnings they're, they're going to be going through them twice as quick. So. Instead of paying two hundred bucks every ten weeks, they're paying three hundred and fifty dollars right. every five weeks. Yeah. Okay. Um, alrighty. Let's. Um, when we get out of here on the weekends, we enjoy having a hit of golf together. So I'm going to give you an example that I keep thinking of, which is you can go out and buy the latest and greatest set of golf clubs that are far more technologically advanced than what mine are. Your clubs will have a greater sweet spot, less room for error, you got more chance of hitting the ball straight, all sorts of things. Now, this happens all over the world, and you could say the same for tennis. You've got rackets with better strings and bigger heads and lighter weight. And So why don't we say that the golfer or the tennis player with a unique piece of equipment is not mechanically doping and, and has an unfair advantage over somebody else? Yep, your point is uh, 100% valid. Um, I would say those sports, and they have had limitations to their technology, certainly golf balls, um, the heads of drivers, the size of the heads of the tennis rackets. So they have had limitations put in, and I think that is what will happen with running, um, with running shoes. But also, as I said before, running swimming and we'll probably get on to that because there's there's been changes in swimming gear um, as far as technology and, and and suits being banned but those olympic events have really always been about a test of human performance of best physiology we want to see the best athlete win rather than maybe the athlete with the best technology number one some countries especially in olympic sports you'll get People from all over the world, Africans being a good example, who are really poor, so they don't necessarily, at, at the elite end they probably get given them so it doesn't really matter, but they don't necessarily have access to the best technology and the best equipment and we want to see the best athlete win. So I say that's the difference. Golf, tennis, these sort of sports are, are really um, much more money involved in them than, than runners and they're, they're technology um, sports, technology-driven sports. But again, they try and keep the, the playing field as level as possible and have made changes over the time. And we've seen it in athletics um, in the high jump back in the 70s. Um, they, they had the same thing where um, athletes were jumping in shoes with bigger and bigger stack height, so making their legs longer. And they have minimised, I think it's set at 25 mil from memory, the height, a shoe 
um, in, in high jump can't have more than 25 mil of stack height. There's certainly precedent set there before um, that uh, for, for shoes and, and uh, equipment to be modified and rules set around the use of equipment. So I think we'll probably see that happen. So it's interesting, we, and when we were chatting about this quite some time ago, you actually brought the IAAF footwear rule to my attention, which I found really interesting in line with this exact conversation we're having. So I'm going to read it to you and then ask you a question. So the IAAF footwear rule states, athletes may compete barefoot or with footwear on one or both feet. The purpose of shoes for competition is to give protection and stability to the feet and a firm grip on the ground. Such shoes, however, must not be constructed so as to give athletes any unfair assistance or advantage. The rule also says athletes may not use any appliance either inside or outside the shoe which will have the effect of increasing the thickness of the sole above the permitted maximum or which can give the wearer any advantage which he would not obtain from the type of shoe described in the previous paragraphs. Now, you've mentioned that with high jump they change the rule, but this this rule here obviously doesn't exist in the marathon world. Yeah, well, the number one thing there is the words permitted maximum. As it, as it stands at the moment, there is no permitted maximum. So they've, they've just got a, that rule really, to me, I read that and I say, well, they'll make changes. Uh, and the, the changes are to, to have a permitted maximum. Okay, well, I'm going to keep going because I'm going to try hard to, to find a, a hole in your defence of all of this. And you mentioned swimming before, so let's talk about this. And I reckon there's an eerie similarity with what happened in swimming as to what 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 is happening with this alpha fly runner so back in about 08 uh, there was an unprecedented amount of swimming world records were broken and just by chance this happened to coincide with the introduction of some really high performance polyurethane neoprene type swimsuits or or wetsuits that we you know i can remember the athletes struggling to get into um, and I think Michael Phelps alone smashed seven world records and won eight gold medals at the Beijing Olympics. And um, and the stats will tell us that those suits, they, they think, were responsible for nearly 200 records since they were introduced. So, again, in preparation for this, I looked into the suits as we looked into the runners to find out what they did. And the suits actually had tiny air pockets. That increased the buoyancy. It set the swimmer a bit higher in the water. It decreased their drag, which we've spoken about with the paces originally. Uh, the suits increased the swimmer's speed and it reduced their fatigue. So if ever we were to say there was a case of mechanical doping, I reckon this is it, isn't it? Yeah, and, and results would say that it, it definitely was the case, and you're absolutely right, and, and the swimming uh, world body made a change and banned those suits. So they were a, a polyurethane-based suit, and unlike running, swimming is a highly inefficient sport um, where any advancement in swimsuits that can reduce drag, and even they, they play around with water levels in pools, they're always looking at ways... Of reducing drag um, and so so the slightest change that allowed that to happen would give people huge advantages and uh, yeah those those swimsuits were were banned and I don't think uh, there's been anywhere near as many world records since then so there was there was this spate of world records back in uh, 08 as you say um, and I'm not sure I don't know the swimming stats but uh, I don't think there's been anywhere near as many world records since they got rid of those suits. So I, I say it, it backs up my argument that there, there'll be a change in running yep. shoes. Yep, I can't get you yet. Um, and you're right, because in, in 2010, FINA banned the suits. It was interesting because their wording was that FINA wishes to recall the main and core principle is that swimming is a sport based on physical performance of the athlete. So are we going to see the IAAF come out at some stage and make a similar statement 
regarded to the physical performance of the athlete and that's what we all want to see. I hope so. Um, the, the That's definitely what we want to see um, is, is the best athlete winning, the best physiology out there. Uh, so yeah, limiting stack height, as I said, seems the obvious answer to me. And uh, I know the IWRF are investigating the shoes. No statement has been made, as far as I know, um, up to this point. The Alpha flies, so we're three months on from that uh, record. I know Nike are looking at a different shoe um, at the moment. They're, they're doing all sorts of research. And Nike are, are just at the forefront um, of, of science with, with footwear. But they're, they're making a claim at the moment, whether this stands, um, that they're, they're going to have a shoe that will really attack running injuries. At this stage, we haven't had a shoe that can um, be shown to decrease um, injuries in running, so the, the, the overuse impact. Um, so they're out there trying to do that at the moment. But as to this shoe, um, I, I think we'll find that uh, the IWF will come out and... and uh, make a statement along the same lines of FINA and, and limit uh, the, the height that a shoe can have, the stack height. Yeah, it certainly seems like something needs to happen soon. But um, as we get close to wrapping it up, I actually came across a, a really interesting article on the Bloomberg website this week. And you're a shares man and you love a little bit of a calculated gamble with your shares and the article was about how ASIC shares had taken a dive that week Um, and the title was ASICs runs into trouble as athletes opt for Nike super shoe and it was interesting because it was all about one of Japan's most watched and gruelling races the the Hakone Ekiden I think they called it okay um, where teams of 10 run 200 kilometers over two days and anyway what the article went on to say was that 84 percent of runners in that Japanese race wore Nike Vaporfly next percent which is pretty amazing and only seven runners whereas there were 51 the year before, were in ASICS runners. So I think that alone makes a statement. And and I just want to know whether you think ASICS have any chance of coming back and getting a stronghold or a Nike just so far ahead at this stage. Yeah, they're amazing stats. I, I hadn't heard any of that, but um, especially in Japan, because ASICS was originally a Japanese, it started with Tiger, which became um, ASICS. Um, so it's a Japanese brand. Um, so, yeah, they'd be devastated and Nike would be wrapped with those <laughs> stats. Um, but as I said, there's no doubt uh, ASICs are, are coming out with their version, if you like, of the Vapor Flies, and all running companies uh, will, will be working really hard behind the scenes to try and match Nike. But, but at this stage, Nike have got a great head start and uh, I, I, I don't know the figures as far as Nike's sales figures, but... I know that they have regularly sold out of their vapor flies, so they uh, would be pretty happy with, with the success of this shoe. Rightio, that's great. I'm going to finish with two quick questions. Will anyone break the two-hour magical barrier in race conditions for the marathon anytime soon? I don't think so. Um, I've always said it won't happen in my lifetime. It probably will now, um, but not any time soon. So the two best marathoners, um, Kipchoge and Kanisi Bikili, uh, they'll race next year at Tokyo. They're both older athletes, um, late 30s. So they'll race in Tokyo for the Olympics um, this year, sorry. So we're in 2020. Um, so that pretty much rules out this year. So they're going to be another year older the next time. So Father Time is against those two, and they're the obvious two. But they ran 58.01 for the half marathon last year, um, and you'd think if someone can run 58.01 in a real race, then he's a good chance of running two hours. So, um, you know, there's every chance that an African will do it sooner rather than later, but uh, I don't think it's going to happen in the next couple of years. Rightio, and this is probably the most telling question. If you were back 27 years old again at the peak of your career... Are you rushing out to buy the Vaporfly? Absolutely. Well, I think that sums it up. I hope you've enjoyed the episode and Rob's been through 
every factor about the shoe and showed us that uh, like it is an amazing design but at the end of the day there's an absolutely amazing athlete that's been in them so hope you've enjoyed it and stay tuned and we'll have another episode out in the next couple of weeks thanks and thanks rob for joining us great thanks anthony